50 seasons of New York Islanders hockey. And the New York Islanders have won their fourth straight Stanley Cup. A once-in-a-lifetime celebration. Oh, my goodness, Ryan Pollock saved the game! This is Talkin' Isles with Greg Picker and Corey Wright. We welcome you into another edition of Talkin' Isles, presented by Betway. I'm Greg Picker, the radio color commentator for the Islanders, joined alongside, as always, by the director of digital, Corey Wright. Corey, this week we go to a defenseman from the late aughts, Freddie Meyer, who played 281 games in the National Hockey League, 178 of those with the Islanders. Really interesting to get to talk to Freddie Meyer. Uh, You two are both BU guys, so a little bit of terrier talk off the top, but at the same time, interesting to hear from a guy that, you know, by his own admission, said he never totally felt assured of a spot in the NHL. So a guy that really had to work for everything he got, but had a lot of great experiences along the way, a Calder Cup. And, hey, you're going to get a lot of stories from guys ranging from Miro Chatan to Rick DiPietro to Peter Forsberg. So I think everyone should stick around for this one. It was a fun chat with Freddie Meyer. And you can really hear his passion of giving back to the game of hockey as he runs a hockey school nowadays in Massachusetts. So we will take it away with FMIV. Went off of Meyer, and now a foot race, and it's a Poso on Cyphers. A Poso put it out in front, but Antropov was back checking. And had it go off of his foot, but there's Como again. All the way to Meyer for a drive. They score! We now welcome in Freddie Meyer to the Talking Isles podcast. And Freddie, you are from New Hampshire. Grew up there. Just want to know, were you a Bruins fan growing up in the uh, the late 80s, early 90s? What was the early hockey scene like for you? Yeah, it was definitely the Bruins. Obviously, uh, I guess back in the day, it wasn't as, as accessible as it is now. But yeah, uh, my dad had some tickets too, though. We would go down a couple games a year. Uh, we're about, we were about an hour and a half north of Boston. So it wasn't an easy trek, but we'd go down watch games. Obviously at the old garden, um, which which was quite a place to to watch a game and be part of it, and you didn't really realize at the time, but how cool that scene really was. So yes, watch the Bruins. I always I always would say a Ray Bork fan growing up. It was kind of my my era coming through watching him and playing on the back end. Well, Freddie, spent some time with the national team development program, and always curious what that experience is like for guys. I think probably leaving home at a young age and then you know representing your country at the U18s. Uh, would that one have been in Germany back in 98, 99? Oh, God. I have a tough time remembering yesterday and where I was, but it might have been uh, Fuss in Germany, though. It was definitely, I think it might have been there. You might be right. But, yeah, it was um, obviously, I guess, a small-town kid from New Hampshire. I went to Cardigan Mountain School, which was a, a junior boarding school in the middle of nowhere up by Dartmouth College and got recruited by the national program. And Bob Mancini made the trek up to Canaan, New Hampshire, and essentially had lunch or dinner the one night and, and presented the opportunity. And we were obviously the, I was there the first year of the program. So there was not much information on it. And my parents, obviously uh, we knew some other kids that were being considered and had the opportunity to go. And we all kind of jumped on together and yeah, it was, it was, it was a great couple of years in, in Ann Arbor. And obviously to see where the national program is now with, with the players that they're, they're producing and, and spitting out, it's pretty impressive. Fall of 99, you arrive at Boston University as a freshman, obviously a high-level hockey program. How early on did the whole recruiting process start, and when did you know that, okay, you wanted to be a BU guy? Well, a lot later then than it is now, that's for sure. Um, obviously, I was at the national program. I think it was going into junior year. We started having conversations, and then 
early in that year, set up some visits to BU and BU, UNH and, and Maine were the kind of the, the final three that I was looking at. Obviously, being in Michigan away from my parents and not having them have the opportunity to come watch games uh, meant a lot to get back on the East Coast and kind of narrowed it down to those three schools. And once again, had some other teammates that I had played with and uh, uh, that were at were going to BU and just worked great. Obviously, being in the city and experiences of of Boston and all the stuff that comes with it was was awesome. Well, Freddie, jumping back to the national team program there, looking at the first team, a couple of Islander names stand out there, Andy Hilbert, obviously Rick DiPietro. But, you know, we know a lot about the Canadian junior life and guys staying with billet families. You know, when you're going to the national team, is it more of just a bunch of you guys like in a barracks together? Or what's kind of the situation as far as living away from home when you're with the national team in Ann Arbor? Yeah, in Ann Arbor, it was, it was similar to that major junior route where it's billet families. We all live with different families. My first year was actually uh, Andy Hilbert was a Michigan guy, so his parents had a condo that a few stayed at with his father, and so we spent there. And then my second year, I moved uh, to another family, actually, that one of the – Steve Gutman was his name. He, he worked at the rink at the, the Ice Cube, and so me and another guy moved in with him and his family, and they had some young kids, and it was a great setup. And But, yeah, kids lived with families, went to public school. After school, got out at 3 o'clock. We'd get in our cars, race over to the Ice Cube, and depending if you're on the – you know, which which day of the week, you either practice for – 90 minutes or you worked out for 90 minutes and the two teams just kind of flip. So once again, the setup was great. I know now I think at the national program, it's more online education and and they're spending a lot of time at the rink. And I I have some mixed thoughts on that. I think being at the public environment or being at the school environment and with other humans besides just hockey players gives you some balance to life. But obviously I understand, you know, the the matrix of, of putting these guys in a good spot to the same way, work out throughout the day, build on their skills, video work, and all the stuff that goes with taking your game to the next level. So your freshman year at BU, a fellow freshman is someone that Corey just mentioned in Rick DiPietro, who would go number one overall to the Islanders at the end of that year. What was uh, being teammates with Ricky like at BU? And and I know he was a, a pretty darn good player that year and basically helped win you guys the bean pot, which is a huge deal. And and an NCAA tournament, uh, pretty legendary second-round game, I think that would have been, uh, sorry for the bad memory, but a quadruple overtime defeat. Yeah, no, I've known Rick. Um, we played Bantams together, so we were probably 12 years old. Him and I were in the same team. I would come down from New Hampshire and play on the North Shore Raiders where Rick was the goalie. So I've known him for a while. Then, obviously, like as you said, we ended up at the national program together, and then he went to BU, and I followed behind him. So I've known him a long time. I mean, Rick is a elite-level athlete. He's a kid that could throw a baseball, pick up a baseball bat, throw a football, whatever it may be. Super talented kid. Obviously, at the national program is where – I would say, you know, he kind of found his wings and, and started to grow as a player. And you'd see his athleticism on the ice, get out playing pucks, all the smaller details that make uh, a defenseman's life a lot easier. And like I said, at BU, I came in in January of that year because I had to finish up a few high school classes. So I came in in January and, and played the rest of the year. But yeah, I won a bean pot. We lost to St. Lawrence, as you mentioned, in the, I think the, yeah, the, what I guess the quarterfinals, the second game, uh, I think it was three overtimes and just, you know, couldn't find the back of the net and they went on to win it, but it would have been interesting, obviously with Rick behind you, if if you make it to the frozen four, how that would have looked. So obviously I've always had a lot of respect for Ricky and obviously playing with him in Long Island is, is kind of surreal when you think about youth teammates and then national team and then at, uh, in the NHL and, and obviously, you know, shame obviously how things ended for him, but I always had a lot of respect for his work ethic, his commitment. He wanted to be great. And unfortunately his body uh, didn't always hold up for him. 
Now, being a, a fellow BU guy myself, can't move completely away from the uh, the Terrier topic quite yet. You've spent four years there playing for Jack Parker. And one thing that we had discussed a, a couple weeks ago when you were on the Island for Alumni Weekend was just how much you loved Walter Brown Arena. And can you describe for those who aren't so familiar with, with college hockey and the environment, just what it was like playing at uh, the former home of BU? Yeah, that's that was that's all I know is Walter Brown. I didn't get to play at Aganis. Um, I'd probably tie it similar to playing at the old Boston Garden, comparable to the TD Garden now. Obviously, Aganis has the bells and the whistles, and it's it's an easy place to watch a game. But I would say Walter Brown was you know your typical old school style rink, seats on both sides, some seats behind the visiting net. The bleachers would roll out, and they'd roll the students in there and. It was one of the only rinks that sold alcohol, I think, too, uh, in the college landscape back in the day. So I'm not saying that's why those college students would like to go and, and spend a Friday night before they would go out. But um, low ceiling, the band would be playing. I think it was 3,800, if my mind serves me right, in terms of capacity with standing room. And it was just a fun place to play. It was loud. Fans felt like you were right up there, right on top of you. And, you know, obviously when you scored big goals or you made big plays, like, you know, you knew it, the place was jamming. And obviously I'm sure there's some some teams that came into Walter Brown over the years that didn't always love their experience just based on the crowd and the environment and, and the hostility of trying to play there. Well, after your college career signed with the Flyers organization and, you know, looking at the 2003-2004 Flyers team that goes all the way to the conference final, had a pretty good back end if you're looking at some of the names. Uh, Eric Desjardins, Yoni Pitkinen was on that team, Chris Terrian. So what went into the decision to sign with the Flyers? Were you juggling a few different offers or was it more they had the best one? What kind of went into the decision to join the Flyers at what was a pretty good time for the organization? Yeah, good question. I'd say there was, a, there was a few options, although I felt like Philly showed the most interest. And I knew, I guess, coming out of school, undersized defenseman back in 02-03, we weren't, we weren't a hot commodity. They were looking for more of the clutching and grabbing of a 6-5 defenseman. So I knew no matter where I, where I ended up, I knew I had to go. I had to compete. I had to prove myself. And that was kind of the mindset I went to Philly with. Obviously, I knew I would, I would I would start in the minors and and hopefully be able to play at that level and then kind of see it. I, I never really saw myself as a, a I'd say as an NHL going through the college process. You know, I just showed up, worked hard, competed hard, and and kind of let pieces fall into it. I always say it's there's always luck involved as well. You know, I think you got to get there, you got to be able to play, you got to get some good bounces and and try to maximize your opportunities. Now, in two thousand four, two thousand five, that was the NHL lockout year, so. Pretty much all eyes on North American hockey would have been on the AHL, and you're playing for the Philadelphia Phantoms, go on to win a Calder Cup. What was that year like for you, considering that was probably as important of a of a Calder Cup championship as there has been in the AHL? Yeah, that year at the uh, in the a in the AHL, if you look at old rosters, it was pretty wild. You know, you have the Bergerons playing in Boston, you have the Coles playing in Lowell because they were in Carolina. You know, Spezza was playing in Binghamton. There was, there was, the league was real. And obviously, we had a good team. We had a bunch of guys, as you mentioned, Yanni Pickinen and and uh, Patrick Sharp, and a lot of guys that had great NHL careers. And same way, that was my second year in the in the minors. My first year overall, I had a pretty strong year from a production standpoint, like solidifying myself. And then we roll into that year, and and kind of I built off the first year and was playing real minutes and 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 was a big part of the team and probably looking back on it that was probably you know a blessing in disguise a blessing that there was no NHL and then you know that 
we had a good team and that I was playing well and proving myself against a lot of these guys that were NHLers. And yeah, we went on to win the whole thing and, and uh, you know, memories for a lifetime in a way, but it was, it was a great stepping stone for me from a career standpoint and, and, and I guess proving myself. And I feel like, you know, for me, it's being an undersized defenseman at that time uh, in the NHL before that lockout, like I knew that I had to like, play bigger than five, nine. I had to, I had to play physical. I had to do everything I could to prove that I could, I could play against, you know, guys that are six, two, three, and four. And obviously the AHL provided that the year, like I said, beating Providence in the semis, I think, and then playing Chicago in the finals. So great experience, obviously great teams and a lot of fun. You already mentioned a few names from that team, but a couple more that just stand out. John Sim, 35 goals that year. And Taron Nittimaki, it seemed like he had a great season. I uh, always loved his mask with Frank Nitty on the side. The teammate I want to ask you about, though, another Islander connection, Dennis Seidenberg. And I can tell you the Dennis Seidenberg that Greg and I got to know later on in his career was an absolute fitness freak. I think he still is. I can only imagine what he would have been like back in that 04, 05 season. So what do you remember about Sides and where does he rank perhaps on the gym rats you've played with in your career? Yeah, good question. Dennis and I lived, uh, we were, we were neighbors in this condo complex that we lived at. So we, we spent a lot of time together, dinners and whatnot. I will say a little cliff note before I talk about Dennis, he is also the world's slowest eater for just a, just like a, maybe a trivia question out there. I think he threw his workout regimen and whoever he worked with back in Germany, I think there was a notion of you need to chew every piece of food, you know, a hundred plus times uh, before you swallow it. So uh, to get all the nutritional value, but no, Dennis is, yeah, he's a freak, like trained hard, really hard before games, after games on the road at the hotel. It didn't matter. He was, he was highly committed to being really good at his position. And obviously it paid off for him, right? Kid from Germany comes over. He, he plays a little in the NHL. Now he's in the American league bounced around a little bit, but his work ethics, his commitment to his off ice habits really took him to the next level. And he ended up having an awesome NHL career with Boston and Islanders and, and everywhere else he was in between, but awesome guy, super hard worker. Like I said, spent a lot of time with him. And, and I would say back, back in those days, we were good, good friends playing. And, and, and I would, I would cliche it a little bit too. I came from BU obviously in the Mike Boyle, you know, Mike Boyle mindset of, of get up for breakfast, workout, train, you know, recoveries, all that stuff too. So I think Dennis and I kind of jived in a way with, with the similar mindsets. And we also spent our summers in Philly for most of the years we were there as well. So there was a lot of crossover in the spring and summer spending time together. I had heard before that he was a slow eater. Uh, Matt Barzell lived with him during his rookie year. I think Noah Dobson lived with him too. And I, I had heard that he spent a lot of time at the shore in the summer. So came over from Germany and it seems like he really gravitated towards, like you said, Philly and the shore and all that. Yeah, the uh, the AT, the athletic trainer in, in Philly, John McCross, uh, Jimmy McCrossin was was same way, local guy that was always at the facility, really good guy and loved to work out and train. And so there was a few of us. Riley Cote was another guy, Dennis Seidenberg, myself, as kind of younger guys that st stuck around there for a couple summers through the minors and through the NHL. And uh, yeah, Jimmy had a place at the shore, so he'd usually invite guys down for the weekend and stuff. So yeah, Dennis, Dennis was all in on, on New Jersey and in, in that lifestyle. So December 16th, 2006, you are traded from the Philadelphia Flyers to the New York Islanders. I looked back at the Flyers schedule that year and it looked like that was a game day in Washington. So how did you get the news? Was it at morning skate? Were you at the hotel? How did you find out you were going to the Islanders? 
I was actually out hurt, hurt my back maybe a week before that. So I, I wasn't on the road with the team. I was back at the practice facility, same way, doing rehab and, and trying to get healthy. And I was midway through a workout and, and Paul Holmgren was the GM at the time or assistant GM. He's, you know, kind of casually in a way. And I, I, I tell this story to people kind of casually strolled into the weight room and just say, hey, Freddie, when, when you finish your workout, come down and see me. I just want to chat about a few things. And so I'm like, all right. And Paul and I had a pretty good relationship. Obviously, this is my third year in Philly. And, you know, my first two years, obviously, he was he was the guy that you would talk with or he would he would be the guy that would say, hey, we're calling you up and you got to take warm ups or practice, whatever it may be. So so I stroll into his office after the workout and sit down and he's like, hey, I just want to let you know we made a trade today. I'm like, oh, cool. Who do we get? He's like, well, we traded you to the Islanders for Zitnik and something else. And I'm like, you know, at that point, you you know, your first time, I guess you never expect it's going to happen. Right. And I recently had bought a house in Philly and signed, I think a two year deal with them. So I was, it was a, it was a comfortable place. And I proved myself to the flyers and felt like it was, I felt like things were home. And obviously on the flip side, you understand the business flyers are struggling a little bit. They wanted to shake a few things up. They brought in, you know, some older players and yeah, before I knew it, I was packing up and on my way to Long Island. And of course, uh, you know, getting traded midway through the season, I assume you probably just lived in that Coliseum Marriott for the back half of the year. Um, I was at the Marriott. I have spent some nights in the Marriott. Yes, yes. No, we ended up that year. Uh, I think I found a short-term rental in Point Lookout where we ended up living for the next couple of years as well. So yeah, I spent definitely some nights at the Marriott and then uh, was able to find like a month-to-month type rental down in Point Lookout where it was fully furnished and stuff that worked out well and like I said, we ended up my my rest of my years on Long Island. We were living not in the same house, but in a, in, in a similar neighborhood. I know Point Lookout has become a, a popular place for guys, especially those who maybe come in midway through the year because they have a lot of those short term rentals. But uh, you wanted to stay there for a couple of years. What did you love so much about that area? Well, I, I had um, at that time. Obviously, I was I was married. I had a young family. Like I said, it was quiet in the in the fall and winter time in the early spring. So it worked out perfect schedule-wise for us. At the time, obviously, we were practicing in Syosset, so you had a little bit of a drive to practice, but at the time of day, there wasn't much traffic. And then, obviously, the, the Coliseum was, whatever, 15 minutes away, depending on traffic. So it just worked out well location-wise. You know, the, the, the town was quiet, not much going on, but that was fine. We had, you know, you're, you're so busy uh, with your, the NHL schedule. I don't feel like you come home and you're looking for all these activities to do. You kind of want to spend more time with your family and, and just kind of hang out and obviously the weather was nice as the ocean you could walk on the beach and and uh just kind of get away so i guess really what are the big memories of your time with downers you know that kicks off the start of four seasons or you know when you think back is it just more certain teammates is it you know any big games at the coliseum is it just you know when you think back to your time with the isles what comes rushing back first I would I would just say the I would say the overall experience to be kind of general with it. You know, obviously I ha- I had some ups and downs in Long Island. Spent a few weeks in Phoenix and then came back a few weeks later on on some waiver issues. So you know I, I would say my time in the NHL there was never this comfortability. I was always a guy that was six seven eight and you're always grinding for for playing time and 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 just I don't know comfort safety job justification maybe a little bit. So I always 
you know, try to kept to myself, worked hard, competed hard. But no, we enjoyed our time in Long Island. Obviously, my in-laws are in New Jersey, so it was close for them to come over to games. And my brother-in-law lives in New York City. So we had a lot of family around for games. And But I would say the Coliseum, when you're, you're playing the Rangers or you're playing some big opponents late in the year and the, and the roof was going to, you know, collapse in in a way, super passionate fan base and, you know, super loyal fan base as well. And obviously, it was great for me to come back a few weeks ago and, and see some of them at the alumni event. And they're obviously, you know, that's what drives a lot of these pro teams. And it's, you're always thankful for the time and, and energy the fans put into it. Um, you know, obviously, you know, I, I think that's always on any of my memories is, is just how lucky I was to be playing in the NHL and, you know, and just try to soak up as, as you know, all the, all the time I had there. We had heard one story during your Islander days where you were on a, a bus ride up to Boston and uh, you got a pretty important phone call somewhere in Connecticut and uh, had to return back to Long Island pretty quickly. Can you take us through what happened there and uh, how you got back down to Long Island? Yeah, good question. We were, it was an exhibition game in late September and I was, yeah, we were, I think we played in Bridgeport actually, and we were going from Bridgeport to Boston, I think for another exhibition game. And my wife was, was super pregnant at the time. And obviously after the game, I got on the bus and we start driving and my phone pings and, and she starts freaking out a little bit. And, and so, yeah, I had the, the bus pull, the bus essentially pulled over somewhere in Connecticut. And I think Kimber came up and, and picked me up and brought me back down to Long Island. And she ended up not having the baby at that time. He was born about a week later, but yeah. And that, in that time too, that was, you know, it was one of those situations where you're saying, wait, fighting, fighting for a job yet family comes first and you had to, you had to do the right thing. You know, obviously going up to Boston and letting the potentially letting your wife have a baby alone wouldn't, wouldn't have gone over too well. So like I said, I ended up not having the baby, but spent some hours in the hospital and made sure things were fine. And then, uh, like I said, the team continued up to Boston for the, for the next night. Freddie briefly mentioned that uh, waiver situation going to Phoenix for essentially what could have been what, maybe a month. So when you look back at your hockey career and you have a situation like that, where you go from the Islanders out to Arizona, I think a brief stop in San Antonio, and then back to the Islanders. Does that month just feel like a dream or like, how does that, ex when you look back at that experience, you know, what do you think? Well, and to add fuel to that, that's the same year that, that my son was, my first, my older guy, Freddie was born. So I went, like I said, it was, we had 8D coming out of training camp or maybe 9D. I'm not sure the number. And, you know, we're all kind of looking at each other like, how's this going to work here? So my phone rang on a Saturday and was snowy and um, they put me on waivers on Saturday and I cleared waivers on Monday and Phoenix claimed me, or I shouldn't say I cleared waivers, Phoenix claimed me off waivers on Monday at noon. And I had a flight out Monday night, Monday night to Phoenix. I think Freddie was born on Wednesday. So I went to Phoenix practice like Tuesday, Wednesday morning, jumped back on a flight, flew back to Long Island. Freddie was born, spent the night at the hospital, got up next morning and flew back to Phoenix. So yeah, it was, I, I think those are the moments where I would say from a fan's perspective, like playing in the NHL or playing a pro sport is incredible. And it's got all this, it's, it's got all this like, you know, limelight and all this stuff. And then you add in, you know, elements like being on waivers or being claimed off waivers and kids being born and there's so many moving pieces with all of this thing there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff from the business side that that i think you know the fans don't need need to know they obviously want to go watch the games and enjoy it but being a player and living through it i think there's always a difference a difference of if you're a superstar life is pretty good right if you're a guy that's that's more on the bubble in some way like there's there's a lot of pressure a lot of nervousness a lot of anxious energy and that year was yeah kind of a wild ride to be honest with you i went to 
Phoenix. I think I played five or six games because they had injuries. Guy gets healthy. I go back on waivers down to San Antonio. Re-entry waivers. I'm sitting at the Phoenix airport. My agent calls. And same way, he's like, good news and bad news in a way. Like, good news is you've been claimed off waivers. And bad news, you're going back to Long Island. And not bad news as, like, you don't want to be in Long Island. But it's like, they just got rid of you, but they're taking you back. And it's kind of like, what just happened here? Like, well, how does this even make sense? Why would you want me back? You just got rid of me. So I came back and and same way, kept kept working hard and, and doing everything I could and got back in the lineup. And then a few weeks later, uh, in a way, I think uh, I, I signed an extension with Long Island, which kept me there for the next two years. So I don't know if Snowy felt bad for me or what, but he, he gave me a couple of extra years. I was just going to say, what was that conversation like with uh, Garth when he picks you back up off waivers? I didn't talk to Garth at that time. It was essentially through my agent. He was coordinated through the Islanders. And yeah, then I got back to Long Island and I think Teddy Nolan was a coach and, and I got claimed off waivers, but I came back and I didn't play right away. So now I get back here and I'm still like the seventh defenseman and I'm practicing and working. And uh, at that point, I, I, I was coming to have a, a little bit of like, what is going on here? This is insanity. So I went and met with, with, uh, with Teddy and I kind of laid it out to him. Like, I don't know why I'm here. Like I, I might've had other options that I might be playing and you guys reclaim me and I'm not playing. I'm sitting in the stands. Like this is ridiculous. And I don't remember how I got back in the lineup. If somebody got hurt or whatnot, but I feel like I got back in and I played well. And then I, and then I was in the rest of the year for the next, I don't know, 30, 40 games. So that was good. It was just a, a wild ride. And I think, you know, like I said, I think there's with any of the pro sports, there's a lot of moving pieces and obviously having that experience, I guess I would have to say it made me a, a stronger human in some way, but or have thicker skin, but no, it, it was great to be back. And, um, and, you know, in the meantime, you know, same way we were living in point lookout when I got put on waivers. And so my wife gave birth, she moved home to New Jersey. We like moved out of the rental and long and short, we ended up moving back in the rental a few months later. Aaron Johnson was nice enough to move in and move back out. And when I, I pleaded my case with them that I was in a, you know, I was in a bad situation. Now you mentioned your son, Freddie, and you're Freddie Meyer, the fourth FMIV. He is Freddie Meyer, the fifth. Did you even have an option to name him anything else other than Freddie Meyer? Well, my wife probably would have taken another option. I felt like from a family perspective, I didn't have many options. My parents definitely didn't sway the decision at all, but I feel like being the fourth Freddie was born, obviously, as a boy. It just seemed like the right fit. You know, I don't I don't know if that chain continues. Now I guess it's on him at some point in his life. But I just felt like for me, you know, I look up to my father and my grandfather, my great-grandfather, I, I didn't know. But I'm always small-town New Hampshire, came literally from nothing, have worked hard their entire lives. And I felt like it was it was a good thing to do to pass on the the baton in a way to my son. And, and hopefully he can same way, have the same mindset of, of work ethic and, and, and competing hard no matter what he does in life. Well, Freddie, I want to ask you about those last couple of years with the Islanders, especially that 09-10 season, because that would have been the first season that John Tavares, you know, first overall pick, joined the Islanders and obviously played as a as an 18-year-old. So just what do you remember about Johnny's first year and, you know, just kind of the steps the team was taking as that rebuild was kind of officially underway? Yeah, I mean, John came in as a as a super mature 18-year-old. You know, from day one, obviously, he carried himself as a professional. He wanted to be great from the first day he got there. Obviously, you're 18 playing against 20, 30-year-olds. Like, it's not, it's not as easy as Major Junior. And he struggled a little bit, I think, early on. I don't remember what his numbers were the first half of that year. Obviously, super talented, 
can pass, can stick handle. I would say at the time, I always fondly remember his skating wasn't great, to be honest with you. And then I remember watching a game a few years later and I wasn't there. I actually texted Bernie, the skating coach, and I, I'm like, what have, you been, what have you been doing with Tavares? I'm like, I watch him now and now he's, he's skating like a man and, and he didn't take any credit for it. He just said he's put a lot of time in away from the rink in the summers up in Toronto. And I think at Johnny obviously added the, the element of, of being able to skate with hands and vision and hockey sense. And, and he's been the real deal ever since. And um, the one thing I always say about, about Johnny Tavares that, that I was super impressed with and, and maybe kind of opened my eyes up even at that point, I don't remember how old I was, I guess probably closer to 30 at that point uh, or 20, 25, 26 is, Although his hands were incredible, every day after practice, he would work on small little stick handling drills. And those are some of my fondest memories that I think about now as a coach and a skills development guy is you're never too good to work on your skills. And and I always remember him. And there's a drill I call Johnny Tavares. He used to do all the time. And I ended up like, I'm like, well, if he's doing it, I should probably be working on my hands too. And next thing you know, I got my six pucks set up next to his his you know six pucks luckily i don't have an old video of that my my pucks are probably all over the place and his are nice and controlled and uh but i remember looking back on that it was you know he was a guy that religiously had pregame skates every practice like worked on his skill sets and uh i know mira satan's name came up a few weeks ago at the alumni thing well miro's another guy that i look at as 500 plus goals i think when he was in long island and he's doing stationary shooting you know every day before practice and uh, I would say my message to kids nowadays, any any of the kids, like you just got to put the time in to work on your game and it doesn't matter who you are or how many goals you have or how good you are. Like you always can get better at some of those fine-tuned uh, skill sets and stick handling and shooting are one of those two things that kids can do in their driveway. They can do at home. They can do a practice. You don't need anything lavish. You just need pucks, some balls, some pucks, a net, whatever it may be, and and work on your skills. I was going to say, this is neither here nor there, but because you brought up Miro, Greg and I used to skate on Sunday nights at Iceworks. AJ, who used to be the old manager at Iceworks, used to have these like Sunday night just shinny. And Miro would come out sometimes, and all of us would just be sucking air, like completely gassed. And one of us asked him, like, is this even a workout for you? And he's like, no, it's like walking. And he would just be skating through everybody's scoring at will. And you're like, oh, yeah, the chasm between us and an NHL player like Miro is inconceivable. Yeah. He's um, yeah. He was a special player. I, and side note, it's so random, but he would also get dressed like three minutes before we walked out of the locker room. I felt like he was like warming up, doing his stuff. Where's the Miro? Where's Miro? He just walk in. I think he had like a Velcro suit that he would just throw on and then he'd, he'd be in line and he'd be going out with us for the for on time for the, for the, for the warmups. But yeah, really good guy. I always liked him a lot. And obviously he's doing great stuff for Slovakia hockey, which is awesome. And yeah, it's, it's fun. Obviously when you can play the game at a high level and you can skate, and I always would say the best skaters are the best gliders. So I'm sure uh, not to knock some of the men's league guys that you guys were playing with on Sunday nights, but I'm sure some of those guys weren't great gliders, which made them have to work the entire shift. Whereas Miro is a great glider. So a couple strides and he's by you and he's just cruising versus uh, overworking. Just go to the front on that, put your stick out. Mirror is going to find you. And uh, Hey, you might have a, a good night just because you happen to get lucky and be on the same team as mirror shits hand. That's uh, what Corey and I were always looking for, but your, your final NHL stop was in Atlanta. You played 15 games for the thrashers in what ended up being their final season as the thrashers, some big 
big personalities on that team. Dustin Bufflin, Andrew Ladd, who obviously spent time with the Islanders, uh, some other Islander connections, and, and Eric Bolton, who wasn't with the Isles when you were there, but uh, came to the to the Islanders after that. What was that year in Atlanta like? And, you know, it was a little bit different of a, uh, of a hockey stop, considering, unfortunately, the team departs after that season. You know, we loved our time as a family in Atlanta. Obviously, the weather's nice. The setup was good. We had a good group of guys. I would say Atlanta, unlike Long Island, is fans go to the game to enjoy hockey, and they're not super passionate about that team at the moment, right? So they go, and there's a lot of transients. So you might have, you know, some Philly fans or some Long Island fans when you're playing against those teams that come in. And But overall, like, it was a, a little bit of a quieter market than, say, Long Island, where, you know, fans are calling, you know, the, the sports talk radio guys in the morning, they're pissed off that the power play stunk and, you know, Meyer turned the puck over late and he should be caught and all this other stuff. So it, uh, whereas in Atlanta, like, you know, people go to work the next day and they, they get on with their lives, but uh, we loved our time there. Um, unfortunately I got hurt around February. So I was out for the rest of the year with concussion. Um, so I didn't really get a great, you know, you know, I was there in the beginning and, and played and then got hurt. So it was a tough, little bit of a tough year, but, you know, obviously, they moved to Winnipeg and, and obviously, you know, from a business standpoint, you got to do certain things to make organizations work. Well, then after that, you know, you wind up playing over in Sweden and Modo. And I believe that's the town where the Sedins are from. I think Modo has a long history. Peter Forsberg played there, if I'm not mistaken. But, you know, what was your time like in Modo? And, you know, how does a, you know, Sweden's a hockey country and I'm sure that's a pretty hockey mad town. So what was it like playing there? Yeah, good question. Yeah, Moto, if you look at the history of Moto and who's played there, there's some pretty impressive names, obviously with Peter Forsberg as as the ringleader and the Sandines, and the list kind of goes on and on. And, and if you drop a pin on a map, it's about six hours north of Stockholm, um, I always would say, essentially at the North Pole. Um, so it was it was not much going on in town besides besides hockey, and Moto obviously was well well followed by the by the local people. But Awesome experience. I really enjoyed my my year in Sweden. And once again, I got hurt, you know, around uh, late December. So, you know, I was only there the first part, but I would have I would have stayed if I didn't get hurt. Like I said, the they took care of the athletes. It was it was a great experience. The the Swedish Elite League is is super strong. Um, you have guys that maybe are, you know, in my eyes, a little bit on the back end. You also have guys that are 18, 19 pushing to make the NHL and uh, great for development, great for playing. The pace was great. The fans across the country are impressive. I would I would compare it to maybe a little bit of a European soccer in a way where the fans are engaged for the entire 60 minutes, cheering, bells, whistle, whatever they got there. They got their their they're loud and passionate for their, their teams. And it was an awesome experience. And unfortunately, like I said, I got another concussion practice one day around Christmas time. And at that point started having symptoms and went through a bunch of procedures and long and short, that was, that was the last time I played pro hockey. And, but it was awesome. I, I, I played with Peter Forsberg in, in Philly, one of my years. So him and I knew each other pretty well. And and at that time he was done playing. He was back in moto as, as the assistant GM, uh, Marcus N- uh, Naslin was the GM and so they kind of connected the dots and went over there and played and and very thankful for that opportunity and, and loved my experience. After your playing career comes to its end, you put your hat into the coaching ring, spend a couple of years as an AHL assistant with the Manchester Monarchs and, and looking at those rosters, you would have had Thomas Hickey right before he came to Long Island. What was young Thomas Hickey like? And now he's doing a fantastic job uh, in his MSG network role. Yeah, good quote. We had some we had some uh, really good teams in Manchester those years, and 
you know, I'd like to say I made them all into NHLers as a coach, but I think uh, as players know, they showed up in pretty good shape before we got our hands on them. Uh, but yeah, we had the Hickeys and we had Tyler Toffoli's and, you know, Tanner Pearson's and Jake Muzzin's and we had some kids come through there. And, you know, I think at the time with, with Thomas was obviously I was the assistant coach who worked with a D we were similar in a way, undersized defenseman. You know, I think he was, he went from a little bit of a, I'd say at the, a boy at a time and, and became a man with his time in Manchester and obviously which led him into the NHL and with a, in a great career as well. But we were similar, you know what I mean? I would say puck moving defenseman in terms of how to make plays and he would go back and, and understand four checks and how to put himself out of harm's way and not take big hits. And I think that's always important as a defenseman, especially when you're undersized of, of how to navigate, navigate the waters, the frozen waters when you're out there and, and uh, you know, make smart plays. And obviously he's talented, you know, offensively as well and, and had some good years in Long Island. So it was always, it's always fun as a coach to be able to work with some of those guys. Hopefully, hopefully they reflect back on time that you helped them a little bit or gave them a pointer or two that helped them. And, um, they were really able to use the rest of their rest of their career. Well, I wasn't expecting Marcus Naslin's name to come up. And as someone who grew up in Vancouver during the West Coast Express, uh, I have plenty of questions that might not be super interesting for the audience of Talking Isles. But I am curious. Uh, well, we actually talked to you recently at Alumni Weekend, and you're doing a lot of coaching now with youth teams in Boston. So maybe give us an idea of what you're doing now, how many teams you're coaching, and what you like about coaching kids. Yeah, so I, 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 when I got done playing, I, I didn't really know what I was going to do. And obviously, like as, you, as we just talked about, I, I hooked on with the LA Kings and were, was working in Manchester. Uh, at the same time, I have two boys that were, I guess, maybe five and six or somewhere in that range that were starting to get into youth hockey. And I started, you know, doing some small clinics. And a lot of the things I've done, you know, since that day are based around my kids and their ages and what I think would be appropriate for them and kind of grown it. From that point, um, I started Dream Big Hockey Stars at that at that moment when I got done playing. And same way, I didn't know where it would go, what, what it would do, but it, you know, it's kind of grown into a pretty good pretty good size hockey development company here in the greater Boston area where we do camps, clinics, private lessons. In the summer, I, we run a program called DBHS Pro Position-Specific Trainings, uh, where kids come in twice a week for eight weeks. Um, and, and essentially, I built the program off what I would want to do as a player uh, in the summertime. Obviously, we do some skill development, we do some skating, but a large portion of it is based on your position and, and becoming better at that. So if you're a defenseman working on breaking pucks out and playing the rush and point shots from the blue line, and if you're a forward, you're working on you know, offense zone instincts and where to be in the ice and, you know, quick releases and all that stuff. And then the group comes together and uh, we put it together and we do full ice flows and one-on-ones and situational stuff. And, you know, I think it's, I think I love the program because kids have the opportunity to ask professionals, you know, how do I play a one-on-one? How do I play a two-on-one? And I've really enjoyed, I guess, I don't want to say giving back to the game, but in a way, giving back to the game. And, you know, I work with, with kids that are new to skates to guys that have maybe played or are playing in the NHL. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't discriminate. I think uh, if the kid has passion for the game and wants to learn, uh, I want to work with that kid. And that's been fun for me. It's been fun to teach, you know, like I said, a kid that doesn't know how to shoot. And before you know it, you teach him how he's how to lift the puck. And uh, he's got a smile from ear to ear. And obviously I've, I've worked with lots of kids over the years and still work with the kids this morning on the ice with private lessons. And, you know, it's always fun to see those kids later on when they develop, uh, maybe it's squirts or peewees, or maybe they become high school players and you bump into them at the rink and they want to run up and say hello to you and tell you how they've been doing. And, you know, I, I've enjoyed that aspect a lot. And I actually think, you know, I actually think 
working on skill development and teaching kids makes you a better hockey player. So if I was out there and I was a high school kid getting into working at camps and clinics and thinking about that stuff where now you have to explain how to do something kind of takes the next step from a learning aspect as well. I think a lot of times as athletes, we just do it. How do you hit that fastball? I just, I just swing the bat. Well, now you got to tell a, a six-year-old how to hit a fastball without knowing anything of, on how to do it. So I think it really makes you slow the game down and think about uh, the processing of it and how to describe it to uh, a kid that might have some learning issues as well, right? There's a lot of different ways out there. And, but no, I, I love it. I'm, like, as you mentioned, I'm doing my own pr uh, private stuff. Additionally, I work at the River School, which is a co-ed six through 12 high school, middle school slash high school in Western Mass. Uh, we're a day school, but I coach the boys ice hockey team and work in the athletic office as well. So same way, working with kids, getting kids into ninth, 10th graders. So you have them for three to four years and same way you take them from kids that are passionate about the game and you start putting in new skills, systematics and, and expectations and watching their, their course over the course of their time through the high school level. So I spent a lot of time at the rink, as my wife said, when I got done playing, like, that's all, you know, why you're trying to do something else. When I started looking at, you know, tech jobs and some other stuff that's out there and thankful for her, her wisdom and, and probably pushing me into the hockey realm, but no, I love it. And, I, and, and obviously I always say, if I'm, I'm at the rink, there's, you know, you're not working too many days in your life when you're on the ice and, and having fun with kids. And um, like I said, that's at, that's at any age, that's, you know, adults that want to learn to play. That's, that's kids that want to play division one hockey or kids that are, you know, Connor Sherry is a guy that I've worked with over the years that's playing in the NHL. Right. So those, no matter, no matter who it is, if you got passion and a smile and you want to work hard, let's go. I'm ready for you. For anybody listening in new England that has a, a youth hockey player that wants to take the next level, dreambighockeystars.com. And Freddie, you mentioned that Ray Bork was kind of your hero growing up. I see Ryan Bork, his son is one of your instructors as part of the program. So uh, taking it to that next generation, what's it been like working with him? And he spent a few years with the Bridgeport Sound Tigers. Yeah, Ryan's Ryan's awesome. Ryan actually, he flew the coop about last March. He's down in South Carolina as assistant coach in the uh, with a Stingrays organiza organization. But Ryan worked all last summer for us, and hopefully I can convince him to come back this summer and help us as well. But Ryan was a super talented kid. I skated with him before he retired, and then that was the connection to get him to come over and help us from a coaching perspective. But talk about a guy that loves the game huge smile, passionate, can still skate like the wind. And he's fun to watch when he's on the ice. And I know he's, he's really enjoying, uh, he coached the girls team here at Rivers last, last winter before he went down to South Carolina and they won the small school championship. So he's got a, you know, he's got a championship to his coaching resume already. And uh, I know Ryan will do great stuff uh, just based off his passion and his love for the game and, you know, his willingness to help kids out. And it's, it's super important, but him and I have a great relationship. And uh, like I said, I hope I can convince him to come back and work for us again this summer because I love having him around. Freddie, thank you so much for the time and uh, really appreciate all this. Yeah. Thanks for having me guys. It's uh, it's always good to talk hockey and best of luck to the Isles the rest of the year. And, and hopefully uh, there's more W's that are coming at some point here. And hope to see you again next year at Alumni yeah. Weekend. Yeah, thank you. Hope to be back. Take care, guys. Well, thank you again for joining us on another edition of Talk at Isles. Please make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you might listen. You can follow us on Twitter. I am at Greg Picker here. And I am at Rightsway. You can follow all the latest info about the team on Twitter at NY Islanders and stay up to date 
on UBS Arena at ubsarena.com. A big thank you to our producer, Rachel Lusher, and to WRAQ at Hofstra University. And we'll see you next time on Talking Isles.